We are still in loop two. Okay, so it's an interesting passage uh, that we come to today. And one of the reasons it's so interesting is because it's, it's only um, in this gospel, in the gospel of Luke, that we hear anything of Yeshua or Jesus's uh, teen years, his, well, coming into his teen years. Uh, so Matthew has an infancy narrative, as I'm sure most of you know, um, but he does not talk about this. He talks about uh, Jesus and his family going down to Egypt, which Luke leaves out. And why does Luke leave that out? It's a good question. I'm, I'm very convinced that Luke writes third. And what that means is that Ma uh, Mark, Luke, uh, I believe Mark wrote first, and he uses um, possibly what we would call a, a, a source text. Matthew then writes using Mark's gospel and probably that same source text. And then Luke writes using both Mark, Matthew, and the source text, or possibly just Mark and the source text. And so Luke probably understands that uh, or believes that we already have this uh, text in our mind, and that is Matthew's text in our mind, and that we already know something about Christ's upbringing. What is a source text? The source text means that it was probably oral tradition, possibly, or a written document. I believe it was a written document. I believe that um, this is a whole different discussion that I didn't decide, or didn't think we were going to have, but it's okay. I think it's actually worth having. Um, the idea of a source document, I think that a lot of what was going on in terms of, of uh, our Lord's teaching was oral. His disciples memorized it, and then they would uh, retell these stories. But I think that Matthew started writing things down, and that Matthew started taking notes, uh, which was not easy in the first century. It was actually not only not easy, it was, it was actually quite expensive as well. But I think that he started to write down what he remembered of, of these things, and this became what is known as a source document. In fact, what scholars call Q, the Q text, so uh, you might hear scholars refer to the Q text. What they're talking about is a source document. There is no document that has been found that is actually called Q. They believe it's a, a, a document, an unnamed document that's kind of out in the ether, and they believe that this was a, a source text. And the, and the reason they believe it is because you have exact quotes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are exact, uh, exactly the same. And so scholars believe that there was a, a document that they're looking at. I believe that that document, or what is referred to as Q, I think it was actually Matthew's Hebrew gospel. There is uh, a lot of discussion among the church fathers and, and um, uh, even within the lists of canonical versus non-canonical books of uh, Matthew's, or Matthew's Hebrew gospel or the Hebrew gospel is what they call it. Um, and it is talked about all the way into the 10th century, and then it just seems to disappear. It's known as a heretical book, only about, I forget what the percentage is, it's something quite low, only about uh, like 60% of what is quoted from the Hebrew Matthew gospel is actually found in the gospel of Matthew. And it is actually juxtaposed in the lists uh, compared to uh, Matthew's gospel that is in our Bible today. So they'll say things like uh, uh, the Hebrew gospel or Matthew's Hebrew gospel is spurious, meaning that it's not considered canonical. It's not considered in our Bible. And then the Matthew gospel or the gospel of Matthew is considered canon. And so both of these two different documents are actually listed in the same lists 
of canonical books in the third and fourth century. And so what was this Hebrew gospel? I believe that it was uh, Matthew's first scratch notes. I don't know if you take notes, but I take a lot of notes. And I actually have uh, three different programs that I use for, scratch, or for notes. I have scratch notes, I have more permanent notes, and then I have my information station, which is the where all of the notes finally end up, like the ones that I think are gold, they end up in this. So I think of Matthew's Hebrew gospel as the scratch notes that he's just writing down, and uh, a lot of that does not make it into his final Greek gospel. And uh, for anyone wondering, I believe that the apostolic scriptures of the New Testament, I believe all of them were written in Greek, and I think that's provable from the original languages. So, uh, that was a rabbit trail. It's okay. Let's get back to the text. So this is the only time in all of the Gospels that we have a narrative of Christ during his, this time in between his infancy and when his ministry starts right around the age of 30. This is not the only time in history that it's written about. I believe it's the Gospel of Thomas. I could be wrong, which is not a canonical book. Um, and when we say canonical book, we're talking about one of the accepted canonical, like accepted as the Bible. Um, Thomas talks about, I believe it's Thomas, talks about Christ uh, making clay pigeons when he was a young child and then them becoming real pigeons and flying off. Um, and just some really, um, I'm not going to say it's weird and wacky, but it's just very... Uh, they're tr what, they're what I believe they are trying to do in these, in these uh, non-canonical books is they're trying to give uh, miraculous uh, weight to Yeshua as a child. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. Okay. Let's just start. It's, it's a small enough passage that we can read through it again, and, and we'll just kind of go step by step through this. I'm not going to try to make this too long. Don't worry. Um, it's actually a really short text, but there is a lot packed in here. So before we jump into the text, one of the things I want you to be thinking about as we start to look at this passage is the question, why is this relevant for us? Why does Luke put it in? Luke is one of the greatest Greek writers in all of the apostolic scriptures. His Greek is impeccable. He is obviously the most seasoned storyteller, and he has methodically uh, put together his narratives. You'll see him often put together witnesses, that is twos, right? So uh, like we saw last week when, when we were reading about these two people in the temple, right? There was the, the male prophet who takes Christ and prophesies over him. And then there's this female, this woman who is in the temple always, right? And, and so uh, Luke does this throughout both of his volumes, both Luke and Acts. And he also, uh, he uses what we call Lucan hyperbole, which we talked about last week, which is this notion that uh, all the world was coming to be recorded in the census. Well, was all of the world really coming to be recorded? No, of course not. Uh, he's talking about the, just the fact that the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire was being counted and those within the Roman Empire. So why, why does Luke insert this this tale here, and we're going to talk about that. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. You know, when I think about this, I think a lot about, I mean, I, th I think a lot about the process of what goes on here. I, I don't think we really have anything quite like this in our present day. 
Um, sometimes I think maybe we're trying to get to it when we go uh, camping for Sukkot, right? The kids are starting to look forward to going out, going camping. We get our tents together and we all kind of go uh, to, the sa- to a place and, and we set up our tents and, and it's, it's fun and whatnot. But we don't have the same traditions. So, for instance, in the Psalms we hear a psalm of what? A psalm of going up. What does that mean? Well, when you're going to go up to the temple, you're going to go in a caravan. Uh, the, the roads to Jerusalem were often dangerous uh, because the robbers would essentially just try to, that's how they made a living. They'd try to rob people on the way up to Jerusalem. And so to go up to Jerusalem, what, we, what you would do is you'd get into a caravan. You'd go with friends and family, and uh, you, would, you would go up to, the, up to the temple. And so as I think about this, I think about, well, what were they doing? They had these psalms that they were reciting, right? They probably had songs that they would sing. The kids could kind of go from one horse and wagon to another, who knows, right? They, it would take them probably a couple of days to get there. They'd go 20 miles a day approximately in a caravan. And so uh, it would probably take them, this journey would probably take them three to four days, depending on how quick they were going. So they're stopping, they're camping. They probably, you know, maybe... Maybe Yeshua sees John the Baptist, you know, on the way up. Maybe they meet. Who knows? I don't know. But I think of this as a joyous time that the families looked forward to. They get to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to go to the temple. They get to see their family. They get to see their friends, right? And now they're going to sing the songs that they always sing. And they're going to play the games with the other kids. And it's just a joyous time to go up to the temple. There are three uh, pilgrimage festivals a year, as everyone here, I'm sure, knows. Those pilgrimage festivals are Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Let's read this passage real quick. Uh, this is uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So I think that uh, in our minds, what we think of when we read a passage like this is that every single year, every single male in all of Israel left their homes and everybody went up to Jerusalem. That is certainly not the case. In fact, there's no evidence that Christ went up with his family every single year. Um, rather, it's their, or three times a year, rather it's their custom, it seems it's their custom to go up for Passover. And this is really, Josephus even talks about this, so does Philo, even talks about the, the going up for Passover. This was the festival. And it's really fitting that Christ goes up for this festival as it is the prophecy that, the festival itself is the prophecy that points to Yeshua and his work on the cross. And so what was going on? Well, I think really what's happening is when, is that the first century, and this has uh, been well uh, written on by scholars. E.P. Sanders, for instance, has written extensively on uh, those who went up. Uh, it's, it's believed that those outside the land of Israel would attempt to go once in their lifetime for one of the f- pilgrimage festivals, usually a Passover. Um, those within the lands, it doesn't seem as though they went up every year uh, for all three festivals, but that they would usually try to choose one festival. You have to think that if it's a four-day journey there and it's a four-day journey back for Yeshua and his family, and then how long do they stay? Do they stay only for Nisan 
14 or do they stay for the whole week? Well, if they stay for the whole week, you're talking about a, an extensive amount of time that they're out. Now they come back, they wait not even 50 days, they have to travel back. And they travel back home and then they have to do it again at, at Sukkot. It just from a financial perspective, it doesn't seem like this would be viable. And so it's believed that the, those who lived within the lands would try to go up once a year. If they couldn't make it, it was really representatives, male representatives from every tribe. That's what scholars believe is being commanded in the Deuteronomy 16, 16 passage. Now, I, kn I know it says every male, but it doesn't seem as though this is how uh, the, the people in Israel in the first century understood it. And it certainly doesn't seem like it's how Paul understands it because Paul has gone for years and years at a time. And then he misses Passover on his way back from, what is it, his third missionary journey. And he says, I'm trying to get back for Shavuot. But you just miss Passover, right? Isn't that the one that you should, shouldn't you want to go for Passover? So it seems as though the, the males believed that if you went once in your lifetime, you'd fulfilled. Um, but the males that lived within the land of Israel tried to go once a year for, if they could. And if they couldn't, then someone from their tribe or from their household would try to go for them. So, and when, yes, sir? Yeah. And then even in Acts where they are circumcised as, as you know, you know, Yeah, so the, the, the passage in Acts, uh, which is the beginning of, so the, that term, the custom of Moses, is only found in Acts 15, 1. Uh, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses and keep the Torah, you, you can't be saved. Right, that's in, in Acts 15.1. It's the only time in all first century literature that I could find where that term, custom of Moses, is used. Now, I think that, that relates to uh, the same thing that we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, where it says works of the law. And they list 13 things in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is obviously not canonical. Um, in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had, the community has some really weird really weird customs. But the 13 things that they list when they say these are the works of the law, none of them are found in Torah, right? And so um, really good uh, Dead Sea Scroll scholars have argued, including now ma major scholars like N.T. Wright and whatnot have picked it up as well. But they've argued that the term works of the law, we see it and we th what do we think? We see the term works of the law, we think, aha, the commands found in the Torah. But what scholars have now argued is that the term works of the law uh, in the first century did, meant extra non-biblical commands. So in other words, like your oral traditions. That's counterintuitive to us because we hear works of the law, we automatically think works of the Torah. And that's not, it's been argued by very, very renowned scholars that that's not the case. And so I think that the term, I'm getting to your question, I know, I'm a long way around, right? Um, the, I think that the term, uh, according to the custom of Moses, I have argued in my Acts commentary that that actually is, should be uh, paralleled with works of the law. I think that uh, uh, custom of Moses is non-canonical extra. Uh, now, with that said, as is his custom, it, it means tradition. 
um, as is his ritual or his tradition. Right. So this is a really good point. In in hang on just a second. In in the uh, in the the wandering text of the Torah, right? What does it say? You're not allowed to leave your place. And there's all sorts of rabbinical uh, tradition and laws about what is your place. And they this is how. If anyone has ever studied the rabbinic literature, they they call it the aruv, right? You have to stay within your aruv. Well, what's an aruv? They say it's your city. And so if you go somewhere like, if you go somewhere like Denver, you can look at a map. They have Aruv maps. And they'll say, if you're in this part, portion of the city, you're in this Aruv. So you're not allowed to leave this place. And that's what they mean by your place, okay? Um, and all sorts of extra biblical, non-biblical commands are, are added to this. You know, a, a Sabbath day journey uh, by the time we get into the 4th to 7th century, depending on when the rabbinical writings are actually created, uh, then they're actually taking this term, a Sabbath day journey, and they're actually defining what that means. It's never defined before that. We have it in the apostolic scripture, but it's not defined. And so the notion is, is that um, it, within the wandering text, you're not allowed to leave your place. But then we see Yeshua, it says, and he goes, where, where does he go? Well, he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, Right? And so that would, so, so now it seems as though, well, you're allowed to leave your house if we look to Christ, right? You're allowed to leave your house, obviously. What does the Torah say? Does it say that you're supposed to go to synagogue? Well, it could be argued that you have to go to a community. I've argued that. I've argued that it's talking about gathering and worshiping on Shabbat, that that is a command of God. And the reason why is because it's called a mikra chodesh. It's called a, it's called a, a holy gathering. A mikra chodesh, okay? So it's a holy gathering that we're doing here. And so uh, I believe that it is commanded. However, it never says that that has to be in a building. It never says that it has to be with a certain amount of people. You know, we're never told that you have to meet with a minion. Does everybody know what a minion is? No, okay, a minion is, is Ben knows. Uh, <laughs> we talked about this, this this past week. A minion in, in the Abrahamic story, we're way off topic, by the way, that's okay. Um, in the Abrahamic story, when, when Lot is about to leave, uh, is about to get destroyed, right? And Abraham's looking down and God is talking. yod has come to his tent. Now he's looking out over Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham say? He says, well, yod says to him, he says, I am going to destroy this place. And Abraham says, if there's 50 righteous men in this city, will you spare it? And he says, yes. And he says, okay, 45. What if there's 45? Yes, I'll spare it for 45. And he goes down the list, right? Then he, then he changes the tense. What about 30? Yes, I'll, I'll spare it for 30. What about 20? Yes, I'll spare it for 20. And you can, they're like playing poker at this point, right? He's like, okay, well, what, what about this, right? There's, I think that there's actually some humor within this, within this back and forth between Abraham and God. And finally, Abraham says, what if there's 10 righteous men left in the city? And God says, I will spare it for 10 righteous men. And then what does Abraham say? Nothing. He stops. He stops at 10. Why does he stop at 10? Who knows? The rabbis have all sorts of different reasons why. But because of that specific text, Jews within, well, within all, almost all Judaism agree that you have to have 10 men over the age of 13 to pray together. Why? Because then we'll know that God isn't going to destroy us. That's called a minion. 
So if you're ever in Jerusalem walking around on a Shabbat, uh, you will have people out in the middle of the street saying, please make a minion. We need, you know, we need three guys because they won't start their prayers until they have 10 people. Is that in the Torah? No, it's not. Is that anywhere in the scriptures? No, it's not. So the same thing with going to a synagogue. It never says in the scriptures, you have to go to a synagogue to fulfill the commandment of the Mikra Kodesh, of gathering on Shabbat. That's just something that, that is tradition, right? Now, is it a good tradition? Well, it fulfills the command to have a holy gathering. So yeah, I would say it is a good tradition. And obviously if Christ did it, then we should want to do it as well. What constitutes a synagogue? I can guarantee you what was going on in the first century is not what is happening at Temple Bethel down the road. It's just not. The most that we know about the synagogue service on Shabbats in the first century is that they were on a reading cycle and that they read the Bible, that they probably sang hymns or psalms together, and that someone possibly expounded on the word. That, too, is debatable. We could get into discussions about what the seat of Moses is. I think that's where they read the, the scriptures. So this right here is our seat of Moses, right? Where the scriptures are read, or that's the, the seat of Moses. It's where the scriptures are read. You had a question, yes. Um, so it's on Luke 2, um, 't right. he didn't run away from his parents we'll talk about that in a few seconds we're going to get there okay we're, let's let's move on okay go ahead a roof yes right. If Jesus tells you to go somewhere else, good question. Yeah, so what do you do if you have to travel on Shabbat? According, well, you, let's, remember, let's remember that the Aruv is a rabbinical invention. We do not find the, the idea of an Aruv within Scripture. So these are non-believing rabbis who have created extra commands to give to us. Should we travel on Shabbat? We try to avoid it. We, don't, we try not to ever travel on Shabbat. Why? Because it takes a whole lot of extra planning. If you drive in your car, you got to make sure that there's no stops that you have to make and fill up if you're not spending money. We don't spend money on Shabbat, so that makes it a extra, you know, making sure that all your food is taken care of, all those kind of things. However, what does it make you do? It makes you think about the time and, and what you're preparing to do. It makes you focus on the command of God to... No matter how you celebrate it, I know that some people are not convicted necessarily to, uh, to not spend money on Shabbat. Um, I've, I mean, my family has, since I was six years old, we didn't spend money on Shabbat. So that's just the, the norm for us. Um, but ultimately, no matter how, how you're celebrating the Shabbat, those are the things you have to think about. Okay, let's get back to the text because I really didn't know if I was, I thought we were going to be going short here and we've been on so many rabbit trails. We're going to, we, we're, Gonna extend. We're gonna be into the wee hours of the night eating hoagies. Okay. What? Yeah, the aruv only takes place in Judaism on the Shabbat. 
So yeah, that's a good question. What are you supposed to do when you travel? It, within rabbinic Judaism, so we can answer this question two ways. Within rabbinic Judaism, no matter where you are, you're in somebody's roof. That means that there is a rabbi who proceeds over that roof. And so you should try to congregate with those people. And I wish that, that those within the Christian church, those of us within the Christian church, would take a, a, uh, a note on this. I'm not saying that when you go on vacation, you have to find a church, but that there is a family of God in just about every single place that we're at. And there are pastors and elders that are possibly, uh, you know, they're, they're working for the gospel within that place. We see this all over the world. And so if we're in a place, especially long enough, we should try to seek out and, and worship with people, uh, worship with other people that are part of the ecclesia, God's ecclesia. Yes. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, and Andre hits the nail on the head when he says that they've been redeemed. I, I don't know if you use that that, exor that that exact word, but if Christ has died for someone loves them enough to give his life for them. It doesn't matter if we disagree with them or what, we should be willing to try to uh, see them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I, I see a question coming. Go, Brandon. Right. It was probably defined in the first century. We just don't know how they defined it. Did you, I mean, was there more to that question? Oh, absolutely. It says in the Gospels, it was about a Sabbath day journey. But here's the problem that we see, uh, especially within the Torah movement today, is people thinking that the rabbinical literature can be read back into the first century. That would literally be like me saying that, uh, you know, our modern time can be read back into the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It's, I mean, it just, it just doesn't work. They're so far removed. The, the Talmud doesn't come around until the six to eight hundreds. You're talking about 800 years after Christ is on earth. The Mishnah, maybe fifth century. You're 500 years after Christ is on earth. You're telling me that that sheds light on, the, on what was going on in Judaism in the first century? I don't think so. Uh, now... <clears throat> There was absolutely a theological concept of what a Sabbath day journey is. But, what, but the question that we would have to ask is, was it retained all the way for four or 500 years? Or did they just use that term and, and attach a, a distance to it? And, and the answer is, we don't know. And so uh, when people want to be dogmatic about, oh, well, it, it's referenced in the scriptures, a Sabbath day journey, which means that it has to be, that what we find in the Talmud is a Sabbath day journey, that the, the dots are not connecting for me on that. Okay, let's keep going. I'll try to go fast through this so that we can go eat. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Yeshua stayed behind in Jerusalem. So they leave, I think of home alone. Right? What events lead up to the idea that his parents leave without him? 
You know, maybe somebody was counting heads of children and one of the other kids was in another a wagon and they count his head thinking, thinking it's Yeshua, it's really Macaulay Culkin. Who knows? You know what I mean? Like, and what, how, how are they going to leave without realizing that their son's not with them? There must have been some pretty great events that went on. Well, they probably saw him playing with some other kids or maybe, who knows, or talking to some adults or something, and they just assume that he's with them. They pack everything up. They leave. Oh, he's with, you know, he's with Aunt Elizabeth. Who knows? And they get a couple days out. Now, that's where we'll go back to Ben's question. What, did he run away? No, he did not run away. He simply stayed where he had been. So that's not a sin. And so, okay. Um, I'm trying to see here. So they went away about a day's journey. And when they began search among them, relatives, acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned. I'm just trying to see. You know, I, I do want to go back real quick. Uh, so first of all, we should know and I can't remember if we already read this or not. Oh, yeah, in 42, he was about 12 years old. First of all, Luke skips, uh, what, 12 years in, in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. What is Luke doing in this span of time? What he's doing is he's, he's really wrestling with the idea that Christ is God incarnate, at the same time, is fully human. He's growing in wisdom. He had to wear diapers. Well, probably not diapers, but he messed himself and had to be tended to by parents and, and these things. He's, he's growing in wisdom. 12 years old, this is important as well. Why? We don't know exactly when the coming of age was. The, the later mission of the later rabbinic uh, literature places it at 13 years old, right? This is when bar mitzvahs happened. I think this is important, and Mike has really impressed this upon me as, uh, as we've gone through uh, various stages of life together, is that a child coming of age around 12, 13 years old is important. And I think it's really important. I think it's important that Fathers teach their children to come into this age as you're becoming something different. You're taking on more responsibility. You're a man now. Maybe not in the sense that we think, but you're a man now. And what I mean by that is you have to take responsibility. Remember, I think it was, what, four weeks ago we talked about Mary, how old Mary was when the angel came and, uh, and visited her. How old was she? Probably about 12 to 14 years old. That, that's, that was mind-blowing for me when I realized that. Okay, she's young. That's about the time that she would have been given to somebody else. How old's Joseph? Probably not that much older. 16 to 18 years old, maybe. These people in our culture are considered children. Yet they are the heroes of the faith when we look into the Bible. Mary is... is you know, she, she, she's blessed because she's this woman of great valor at the age of 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. Christ comes into the temple. He is 12 years old. He's teaching the teachers. And this is important. They, you know, Paul is, is said to have been raised under Gamaliel. What happened? Well, he's from Tarsus. Why is he in Jerusalem? His parents are probably rich enough to actually send him to Jerusalem. He probably lived with a teacher, Gamaliel, and he probably 
was with him in the temple and, and sat and listened and lived with him. And so Yeshua is in the temple. He's not learning from these guys. He's teaching them. And I think that it's important for us as believers now, we need to start, you know, I was never treated like an adult by my, by my congregation. Uh, and that was because of the way I acted. I'm sure. I acted like a kid. And I still do often. But the, the fact is, is that we need to impress on, on our children, you're coming into a different season of life. A lot of the time, we think in our own culture, oh, well, you know, during my 20s, I did thus, such, and that, whatever, right? Oh, my 20s were a disaster. This should not be the case for our children. Why? Because we need to push against the norm of our society and say, you are held accountable unto the community and unto God during this time. Here's just a couple of notable people throughout history who did amazing things at a very young age. Joan of Arc at the age of 13, believing she was on a mission from God, but having no military experience, Joan of Arc led the French army in a major victory against the English at Orleans during the Hundred Years' War and helped make it possible for Charles VII to begin the kingdom, uh, to regain the kingdom in 1429. Joan of Arc was captured by the English in 1430 and burned at the stake in 1431. She became a French national hero and was at long last canonized. That means she was considered a saint in 1920, becoming Saint Joan of Arc. We have one in the Bible, King Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he was made king. Eight years old. All of the other kings in, in, during this history of, of Israel were corrupt. They set up, you know, at time and time and time and time again. And they, they were evil in the sight of the Lord. They set up altars on the high places and they burned their children to Baal. Time and time and time again. And then here comes this eight-year-old, and he doesn't listen to the counselors. He doesn't listen to the people around him. Instead, he listens to God, and he tears down the high places. Starting at eight years old, he does this. It's unbelievable. How many of you think of our founding fathers of America as these guys in, in powdered wigs, you know, with, with revolutionary uh, rifles? The fact of the matter is that there are people during the signing of the Declaration of Independence, who were in their late teens and some in their early 20s. What does that tell you about their upbringing? It tells you that when they were in their early teens, they were given responsibility and they were given the idea, this is the way that you have to, you're a man now, whether you want to be or not. Grow up and take responsibility. And one of the things that I've realized is that baptism is much like this. If you're going to be baptized, you need to, be real, you need to realize that you take on responsibility in the, in the community. It means that if you do something that is outside of the norm of, of God's law, there, there's retribution for that. There's discipline for that from the community of God. And so I think that it's important, fathers, that we start to train our children at a very young age that, hey, as you come into your teen years, you're expected to pull your weight, both both as a young man, but also, and not go out and get a, get a job or anything, but that you're supposed to take an active role in your spiritual life. That you're supposed to be reading your Bible, that you're supposed to be praying, that you're supposed to be tra training so that when you get, get a family, you then can train as well. These are things that I don't think that we think 
about too often. So, back to our story. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So, not trained, he's not trained, he has come to this understanding that is mind-blowing. It's like, it's like the Bobby Fisher of theology. Oh, but did he? Okay, keep going, keep going. Yeah, virgin birth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was born, but he was pre-existent. Keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that, I'm gonna hold that question until later because I think that that is too big of a conversation. We're talking about the essence and the, the foundation of our faith, right? The essence and foundation of our faith is that Christ doesn't have a beginning. And if he did have a beginning, his, his death on the cross would not atone for sin. So, I mean, these are things that we really do want to talk about, but we're going to hold off on talking about them. Maybe during, maybe during lunch. Okay. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, now this is, this, let's recognize this. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, this is going to be the first time in all of Luke's gospel that Christ says anything. It's the first words of Yeshua in Luke's gospel. Why? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He now juxtaposes God as his father to Joseph as his father. Was Joseph his father? Legally, absolutely. In fact, we even see an attachment to the tribe of Judah Right? We've talked about this at length here in this community. Attachment to the, to the tribe of Judah because of Joseph. But Yeshua says, no. Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. In other words, his father is God, but he's going to still submit to the earthly parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. What is it that they didn't understand? They knew about the virgin birth, obviously, right? We've been through that in Luke. And I think that this is the point. This is the point of Luke putting it in his gospel. We call this the, the self-realization of Christ, it means that at some point, Yeshua recognized that he was God incarnate. Did he know it when he was a baby and probably couldn't? I mean, do you think Yeshua came out of the womb talking? Hey, how's it going, Mary? Good to see you. Thank you for the journey. No, of course not. He had to grow in wisdom and in knowledge, just like every other human. So at what point, this is a huge question among scholars, at what point did Yeshua know, I am the, the one I'm the one that Isaiah talks about. Okay, go ahead. Uh, 
And Luke answers that in the affirmative. He says right here, you need help? Can, can you ask Michaela? She's in the back. Go in the back. I think he needs to use the bathroom. Go on. She'll help you. And so this is the whole point of the story is Christ comes, to, Christ comes and says to his parents, didn't you know I was supposed to be in my father's house? Joseph, yes, is his earthly father, but he realizes, it seems as though at this stage, Christ has already realized that, uh, that there is something different. He knows about the virgin birth. He knows about what's happening. He knows who he is. And now we're going to skip to his full ministry, but it seems like this is when the Spirit has at least informed him. He's come to the realization that he is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for this Sabbath day. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, for the way that you have given it to us, that we can currently read it without fear of persecution, that we can open it, handle it, and study it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this passage today, although short, there's so much that we can learn from it. Help us as, as people in this community to help lift up and build up our children. Help fathers to be able to push their children to dive into the word and to better understand the Lord and, and who, who you are. Father, we bless you once again for all the people here. Help us to have a blessed time during our meal, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.